Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, TV host, and founder of Earth Echo International, Philip Cousteau. Philip Cousteau pours his passion for wildlife and exploration into his latest release for young readers. The first book in a science-backed, high-action series, this adventure of a spunky group of endangered animals has an important environmental message for young audiences. Through twists and turns, underground caverns, sneaking through private buildings, and a villainous kidnapping, four daredevils will stop at nothing to save the animal kingdom they love. Grandson of Jacques Cousteau, Philip has hosted numerous TV programs from Discovery, BBC, CNN, Travel Channel, and more. Currently, he is the host of the syndicated television show, Exploration Awesome Planet, and producer-narrator of a new virtual reality experience, Drop in the Ocean. Welcome to the show, Philip. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. Well, it was interesting, I have to say. Uh, a couple days ago, we were I was watching television with my four-year-old grandson, and you were on. There you were talking about, and he was mesmerized, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, yeah, so that was a, <laughs> a good intro to our uh, interview. Uh, okay, oh, The so Endangered. Glad. Where did this, yes. the idea for, yeah. <laughs> well, The Endangered, you know, it, it's a... Uh, um, yeah, it came out about a month ago, and the idea for the book really came from my experiences in filming wildlife and endangered species. Um, you know, about uh, a year or so ago when we were really digging in, a little more than a year ago, we were digging into the story and starting to figure out what we wanted to do, and, and this new book we wanted to do with Harper Collins. It was really about how do we make this crisis come alive, um, you know, in my lifetime, in 40 years. And I, and Catherine, I have a, an 18-year-old daughter, 18-month-old daughter, I should say, 18-month-old, um, and, yeah. and I'm 40. And when I was her age, uh, we had twice as much biodiversity on this planet. We've lost half the biodiversity on Earth in 40 years. And so we are facing a, a, a crisis of epic proportions in the, in the loss of wildlife and, and biodiversity on this planet that creates the systems that, that make life possible. Um, and so we wanted to find a way to tell that story. Now, for many years, I've been focused on youth and youth education. My grandfather um, always told me, you know, before we talk about environmental conservation, we have to talk about education. And so for 15 years, I've run Earth Echo International. We've become one of the leading youth environmental organiza- education organizations in the world. We have programs all over the world. Um, and as you pointed out, I also do TV shows and different programs. Um, a lot of it targeted towards young people, not all of it, some for CNN and BBC, you know, uh, uh, more news-oriented uh, work. But um, uh, we want to do a fiction book and tap into the passion that young people have about animals, and frankly, at how aware they are about these issues already and harness that passion and really make them feel uh, like they could take action and, and make the world better and help solve these problems. So that's the endangered. It's, it's a fiction story. It's a fun adventure. It's exciting. Um, kids love it. It's gotten terrific reviews. It's targeted towards middle grade readers, eight to you know, 12 years old. And uh, it's really one of those things that um, uh, gives kids an opportunity to, to dig their teeth into this, this endangered species issue um, and, and feel like they can, they can be part of the, the, the solution. 
Yeah, well, I think you talked about it in one of the interviews, or maybe it was with your co-author. Education, like your grandfather said, is important, but also entertainment. And you combine the two, and then that's a good way to get your message across, right? Especially for this age group. Absolutely. That's so important. You know, you say 8 to 12. That's a huge difference. I mean, uh, well, in in terms of uh, 8 to 12, um, but the book is for that whole age group, right? That yeah, it's for that middle age reader. And what's great about it, you know, you're right, it is a big, you know, it's a spread. It's spread, kind of the established yeah. literary spread. But but it's it's nice because, you know, what we find is a lot of parents enjoy reading the book, even to, to younger kids, six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. And, and, and I've, I, I've, I've heard a bunch of stories about kids picking up this book. I mean, so in love with it at eight, nine years old that they managed to get through it. And, you know, in a week and they picked this book up and it's a full, you know, it's a full big book. Um, and so it's, it just, it's perfect for that age group. They love animals. And frankly, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, with young kids, they know these types of issues are happening. They know there's problems with the environment, even that at that age. And so this is the kind of thing I think that, that, that really helps to tell stories at the back of the book. We've got a lot of information, uh, real life information about these different animal species. Let's see, we've got on the main team, we've got a, a polar bear, a pangolin, uh, a narwhal, an orangutan, and black-footed ferrets. And so we have real information about them at the back of the book. Online, we've offered, and now they're, we've done them in November, now they're all archived, live webinars that I hosted with uh, experts in the field doing research and conservation for these animals where students were able to come online and ask questions about them and learn about them. We've archived all of those. We have a partnership with the World Wildlife Fund where we have wildlife in the classroom resources and, and through my organization, Earth Echo. And so this is more than just the book. The book is really an entry point. Um, and particularly these times when parents are, you know, homeschooling, uh, kids are distance learning. Um, we wanted to create a, a, something that's a more well-rounded resource, a fun book that ki- parents can give to their kids that they're going to devour and read. Um, and then a, a suite of resources to back that up and support that, that further engagement in these issues. Question. I was thinking the pangolin because I was re- as a pangolin as I was reading the book. And I, I remember at the beginning of this ac- epidemic, COVID-19, they were blaming the, or uh, they were looking at the pangolin as maybe a pangolin. Am I pronouncing it right the there? Looking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As a, yeah. As a vector for the. Yeah. For COVID. Why did you choose that correct, animal? You know, so I'm going to ask you why you choose all, you know, all four of them, but let's start with <laughs> that one. Yeah. You know, I, pangolins are, and, and obviously, you know, we chose this long before um, COVID, but you're absolutely correct. Pangolins did get a, a moment in, in the news when there was some speculation that they were the, the vector of COVID. You know, COVID-19 is a, is a zoonotic disease. In other words, it comes from nature and, um, and you know, assumed that it originally probably came from bats, um, but bats don't tend to uh, the, the viruses don't tend to jump from bats directly to humans. Usually they, they pass through some other animal, um, wild pigs, for example. And there's some speculation that it could have also been pangolins. Uh, pangolins are the most trafficked animal in the world, uh, illegally. Um, they are, think of like uh, maybe the body, the tails can be very, very long, but the body of its, itself can be one, two, you know, maximum of maybe three feet long. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like an armadillo a little bit. Yeah, um, kind of scary these, looking, these actually. scales on them. It's, you know, when you see them in real life, they're actually pretty cute, especially the babies. But, um, yes, they can be kind of intimidating. They've got these, these, these armored kind of scales, and it's the scales that are, that are thought 
um, to have aphrodisiacal and you know medicinal qualities, and they turn it into a soup in Asia. Uh, of course, it's nonsense. The scales are actually keratin. It's the same thing that your fingernails and your hair is made of, in the, which is the same thing that a rhino horn is made of. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but hundreds of thousands, probably around 100,000 of these animals are killed every year um, for the illegal wildlife trade. And it was, an, you know, they're, they're extraordinary animals. And I wanted to, to kind of highlight that a little bit. A lot of people don't know about them. And so we wanted to tell that, that a little bit of that story. And they're, they're acrobatic. You know, the char- character Wangari in the book, she's, she's the acrobat. She's the engineer of the group, the, 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 the techie. Um, and they have long prehensile tails. They can hang in trees and things. So she was like, the, that was the perfect candidate for this character. And what about the orangutan? The orangutan, uh, Arif, is, is kind of the boss of the group, kind of the leader. Um, you know, he is a character inspired by my experience, the, um, each of the characters, we wanted to embody one of the big crises that endangered species are facing, right? So be it the illegal wildlife trade, the illegal pet trade, uh, deforestation, the Arctic, you know, uh, melting and, and ecosystems changing from climate change. Um, and Arif was inspired by my experience in Sumatra with filming with CNN several years ago at a wildlife uh, orangutan rehabilitation center. Um, the, the two main problems that orangutans are facing in the wild is deforestation. Uh, the Sumatran orangutan is heavily uh, endangered. There's only uh, oh, a few hundred of them left. Um, and they are uh, uh, also prized as pets. So what happens is poachers will go into the forest, kill the mother that has a, find a mother that has a baby, kill her and take the baby from her and sell them into the pet trade. Uh, unfortunately, when orangutans are small and little babies, they're very cute. Uh, when they start to get a little bit older and bigger and have teeth and their strength, which is extraordinary, they're less cute. And so they're oftentimes abandoned or maybe if they're lucky, young enough, they'll be rescued. And then they're rehabilitated uh, in some cases to try and reintroduce them to the wild. So I wanted to tell that story with Arif um, as well. And, okay, that's Arif. Now we're the polar bear. I like uh so, so Nikilik, the polar bear, is the, the, the girl power. She's the strong character in the book, um, rescued from uh, starvation up in the Arctic. You know, as the sea ice melts in the Arctic, this is a big problem. Polar bears spend the majority of their time out on the sea ice hunting. Uh, and as the sea ice becomes more sparse, um, those hunting grounds are no longer available to them. So that's really her backstory. And um, she is found by some researchers up in the Arctic and rescued uh, where she's starving. And, um, and that's how she enters the group. And then we have finally a, a, a narwhal, um, also Murdoch, the, 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 the jokester of the group. Um, he, uh, he's also rescued from, uh, from, a, from a precarious situation up in the Arctic. And then finally, the last two characters are two black-footed ferrets which are highly endangered uh, from the southwestern United States, the Great Plains regions. Um, they used to roam, as did the buffalo and, and so many creatures, the, the Great Grass Plains, all across the, uh, the central United States. Um, they are highly endangered now. And, um, uh, but there is a, a successful program that is reintroducing them to the wild, and so we, we explore that kind of hopeful story. Uh, as the backstory of these characters in the book. And so, you know, they're, they're all really looking at how we, um, um, uh, backstory is a big endangered species, but then also some hopeful elements about, you know, what are the, what are the positive things that are happening that we can all engage in to help, help these animals. 
And this book is a is is a is going to be a series, right? This is the first book in a, That's right. a series. Yeah, a series of books. What about you mentioned you have an eighteen month old daughter? Mm-hmm. So, do you read the stories yeah. to her, or she could, or you had, can't quite test them out on her yet? I guess at eighteen months, but not I, yet, not yet. She's yeah. a, <laughs> she um she uh, she loves the book cover, and uh, with the, with the animals and you know and the, the illustrations. Um, and I brought a little bit to her, but you know she gets through a page or two and then kind of loses interest because she doesn't really understand what's happening. So um, we're still we're still on, on some more basic books than that. I have a children's book called Follow Them in Home that is a little bit more her speed for for um, for younger kids. It's about a little girl who rescues sea turtles. So that's uh, that's more for her. In fact, the, the main character in that book is named Vivian after her. So give her another eighteen months, she'll probably will be interested in the endangered. Yeah, um, definitely, yeah. definitely. <laughs> So, yeah, you fa- now I think I mentioned it in the beginning, but you founded Earth Echo International in 2004. So, talk to us mm-hmm. about that and the work you and what's happening with Earth Echo International. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my grandfather always talked about the importance of education. And, you know, when I got out of university and was really looking at a way to honor my legacy and, and, and particularly my father. Um, Philippe Sr., he, he was the younger son of my grandfather, and he tragically was killed in an airplane accident six months before I was born. Um, and we wanted to, to honor him and, and his decades of work in conservation. And so we started an organization that's really focused on education um, because we believe that, that education is key to building a foundation uh, in society of people that care about these issues, understand these issues, uh, and that we you know, desperately in the United States in particular, we really need to return to to um, the bipartisan era of the Nixon years. Um, you know, I, I like to remind people that um, Richard Nixon is the one who passed the Clean Air Act uh, extension, the Clean Water Act. He founded the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and he was the Republican of Republicans. Um, there was for a long time this, this bipartisan sense in society uh, that unfortunately we've gotten away from, um, that conservatives and conservation were were actually um, uh, very closely aligned. And um, uh, that has, has shifted over the last few decades. We need to get back to that. And we really believe that education is key to building, um, you know, a, a, an educated society that, that cares and understands that these issues of clean water and clean air shouldn't be political, but that they should be, you know, universal. Um, well, so we've had four so, years you know, of not that, not that, what you're talking about. And it's too bad. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to repeat well, that again. But, okay, decades, now we're moving say, forward. Catherine, <laughs> what? Yeah, we are moving forward. We are moving forward, but it's still, unfortunately, a very partisan issue. Um, you know, we, we've had a few decades of that. Really, frankly, since the Reagan administration, has it become such a partisan issue? And, um, you know, Richard, why do you think uh, that is? I'm going to stop Reagan. you because, I mean, you're in the midst of it. You're embroiled yeah, in all of you know, this. There, you know, I actually studied history. Um, uh, my, I have a master's in history from University of, of St. Andrews. And, um, and I actually studied this phenomenon in, in, at university, this idea of, of the, the environmental divergence in, in politics in the United States. And frankly, uh, a lot of it stems from um, the, the, the Reagan administration. Uh, he famously removed solar panels from the White House that Jimmy Carter had installed. And... Um, uh, it was, you know, at the time, the environmental movement in the late 70s was still very, very associated with um, the hippie movement and with a very you know, progressive love Mother Earth movement that was unfortunately um, looked upon with suspicion 
um, by the, 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 the religious um, establishment in the United States. And in order to court that establishment, the religious right that he so famously, uh, Ronald Reagan, did uh, uh, um, uh, work with uh, to great effect and uh, very uh, closely, um, they had to kind of turn their back on this sense of, of conservation in the environment. And um, that was part of it. Um, and, uh, and that kind of continued through um, the, uh, the, the divisive years of the Clinton administration as, as Al Gore, who has been so courageous in focusing on climate change, um, Newt Gingrich and, and, and that very divisive era in our, in our Congress decided that that environment was something that we could add to the culture wars and uh, would, would all of a sudden be something that they could manipulate to divide us as opposed to unite us. And unfortunately, um, George W. Bush continued in that kind of vein um, of, uh, of using uh, uh, climate and environment as a wedge issue. But uh, so that was really, a, unfortunately, a strategy of, of the modern Republican Party and, and operatives in that party that, that were really focused on how to, how to divide people around um, issues as opposed to unite them. What we're seeing, though, is a shift away from that now, finally. And, for example, a recent survey found more than half of young Republicans in the United States believe that the, envir- that the government is not doing enough to combat climate change. Now, that's a two-to-one increase over baby boomers uh, who are Republicans. And so um, there is progress, and I think that, that we're getting back to this sense of mutual um, understanding and responsibility that, uh, you know, destroying. We can, we can have different solutions to the problem, but at least acknowledging that we need to uh, focus on environmental sustainability, that people yeah. have I need to have access to clean air, clean water as a universal right. We're, we're getting back to that, and that's the good news. Yeah. So we're defining the problem. We're agreeing maybe on the definition of the problem, but as you say, how we what we do to mitigate the problem or the answers will, may be different, right? Also, there's that's more okay. science, like isn't there? Bold. I guess the well, yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> you know, we're also having a younger generation that, that fortunately, despite some efforts in some school districts and, and states across the country. Um, you know, that we have more science. We have, you know, a focus on that in the classroom and, and young people really understand that we need to move beyond um, the arguments about what's happening and, and find solutions. And again, we can have different opinions about those solutions and that's healthy, but we need to at least acknowledge a problem before we can solve it. And that, that's what's happening. So again, I, I think that's the good news. How much, that's my next question. How much focus is there? And, and you, I, I assume that you have privy to some of this information, like in the classroom, let's say in elementary school, middle school, I guess all of it, elementary, middle school, and high school, how much uh, do they focus on climate change? Are there courses on climate change, like in, in high schools, for instance, and I don't mean just private schools, but public schools, um, and where do they start in the elementary schools talking about climate change, or do they? It varies dramatically, as you can imagine, uh, across the country. Earth Echo does a lot of work in formal education. We provide a lot of resources, not just about climate change, but about fisheries and, and the ocean and biodiversity and you know the environment in general, um, both in classroom, after school. We run uh, one of the world's largest citizen science water quality programs, Earth Echo Water Challenge. We do biodiversity programs. We do contests and initiatives all over the world from, from Africa to to, to Asia, Australia, the UK, Europe, etc. Um, and what we find is that there is a, a, a really uneven playing field from the perspective of environmental education. So states, which is probably not a surprise, states like California tend to have a much more progressive, more robust environmental education program in the classroom. 
than some other state. Um, and so what we really look at doing is how do we provide environmental education, but in the context of what teachers already have to teach in science, um, as opposed to expecting that it's always going to be, you know, a separate um, uh, subject matter. Um, but frankly, w- where does our knowledge about chemistry and biology and physics come from? It comes from the environment. And so we look at opportunities to teach these concepts um, in the context of existing programs in the classroom so that it can be something that, that is universally available to teachers everywhere based on, on the things they have yeah. Well, I have uh, three sons who are a little bit younger than you, who I'm a baby boomer, blaming all of this on me. <laughs> as you're, not at all. You know. not, at all. <laughs> not, not at all. There's <laughs> wonderful progressive uh, work that has been done and, and good bipartisan work, uh, you know, that, that, that has happened under, under the radar. But, you know, certainly um, there's been a bit of a division over the last few decades, but we're coming back together. So, Yeah. Well, does, are there any specific kinds of things that you're aware of, let's say, that this newest administration intend to do or have talked about doing? Yeah, you know, there's certainly, and, and again, I think this demonstrates the youth power in this country. Um, there was a, a research study, University of Tufts did, looking at the states that had, where young people had the most potential to impact the recent election. And two of those states, the number one and number two states was Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. We saw a massive turnout of young voters this election cycle. And one of the major motivating factors for them was climate change and is climate change. And I think that I hope that's a wake up call to Republicans, that this is no longer a wedge issue. um, That is a winning issue for a younger generation at the, at the, uh, at the, at the poll booths. Um, And so I think that, you know, the voting booths, I should say. And so um, what we're finding is, is a, is a much more robust commitment by the Biden administration to, to rejoin the Paris climate accords. Um, And I know this is becoming, unfortunately, again, a, you know, a a divisive topic, but the green new deal is something that they've really embraced. Um, And I, and I believe that, uh, Frankly, and unfortunately, again, I, I say this, I lament that this is the, this is the reality, that, that the last four years has been such an environmental disaster. Uh, it has been, um, and, uh, and, and I'm glad to hear, you know, that, that we can get back on track in a, in a robust way of focusing on you know, solving some of these problems. I mean, just recently, the Trump administration and the EPA declined to regulate soot in uh, air pollution against the, the advice of their own scientific experts that were appointed by the administration. So, um, you know, it, it's been pretty bad uh, on the environmental front, I have to say, over the last four years. We only have a couple of minutes left, and maybe this question, the answer will take longer, but where does that mean, I mean, I know politically you've talked about the Reagan administration and where some of this stuff started, but mentally what goes on in people's head when they have this information about climate change and we have the scientific facts that, that it becomes this bipartisan issue and, you know, you're talking about people who are trying to prevent any uh, prevent anything being done when it comes to to the environment or uh, to being where does that what's the headset for that mindset well there's there's two things that two things i believe that need to happen and the first one is we need to talk less about polar bears and more about opportunity um, what we're missing in so many respects i believe historically in the environmental movement is we talked about a lot about the things that we care about uh, as opposed to what 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 people need to talk about and, and need to care about is providing jobs and providing opportunity for their families. There's so much opportunity in the green economy to create jobs. Um, coal is dying, not because of any particular 
action on, on, the, on the, by the Obama administration or by environmentalists, um, but because of economics. Renewable energy is becoming cheaper and is now cheaper than coal. That's the reality. And so how do we adapt and evolve and provide opportunity? And, and I don't think we focus on that enough in the environmental movement um, uh, of how do we help people that are out of work? How do we help people that are trying struggling to feed their families with these kinds of technologies and investing in these technologies? I think that's, that's very, very important. And there's That's tremendous key. opportunity there. And the second one is, how do we connect the dots? How do we help people recognize that protecting the environment is about our security, is about our health, is about opportunity, not just about, you know, protecting trees and forests. And, 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 and I think those two things are key and central to, again, making this more of a bipartisan issue and, and bringing everybody under the tent. Yeah, I agree. That's well said. We have thir- a minute left. So the endangered, it's Philip Cousteau. Uh, website we can go to for more information about what we've been talking about and also we want everybody to buy your book so give us um, absolutely well it's a great yeah. it's a great gift for the holidays go to it's really easy uh, theendangered.com um, go to the website you can find out everything there and then links to Earth Echo and World Wildlife Fund and the educational resources and for parents at home um, uh, with kids that are you know that are distance learning you need something for them to look at we've got webinars on there uh, and you can also check out uh, my show Awesome Planet that you mentioned the syndicated show six seasons it's on Prime uh, and it's every Saturday morning syndicated and it's great it's all about natural history and how the world works and it's targeted towards young people so um, those are two fun things that, uh, that, that, that parents can, can introduce their kids to and be comfortable and and, and um, confident that, that, that they'll learn something and have a good time. Great. Philip Gusto, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great information. Catherine, thanks for Educational having me. Educational and entertaining, I have to say. Yes. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 